as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother unto death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Oh, Oh, hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, um, and a whole bunch of sagebrush allergies, uh, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural, in a con scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, um, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids, and you don't have to hear me sniffling in all of them. <laughs> you can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, or if you are a big kid, <laughs> I have a weekly broadcast where I teach Bible context in a way that shows kids why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Ugh. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm just... It's going to be a long haul today. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want, not the translation police. Good thing, too, since, you know, I can't speak Greek or Hebrew. That would be awkward. Um, I can read a lot of it, but I can't speak it. It's totally different. Um... A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at ancientbridge.com. Isn't it funny when they, when, when people say, yeah, I can read a certain, yeah, but do you know what you're reading? Well, no, but I can sound everything out. 
Oh my gosh. Anyway, okay, so we are in Mark chapter 13 again. We're following up on last week, and last week Yeshua pronounced the uh, covenant lawsuit verdict against the temple and the temple establishment, saying it was all going to be destroyed. So this week we start in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. Now, if you tuned in last week, you remember that Yeshua had just exited the temple complex with his disciples after all of the disputations with the various leadership factions. And after delivering the damning parable of the tenants and the vineyard against them and accusing them preemptively of murder and rebellion, they had decided to kill him. Yeshua signed his own death warrant, okay? Now, seemingly oblivious to the extent of the drama, the young disciples begin gawking over the temple complex, um, which was uh, undoubtedly a wonder of the ancient world. <clears throat> now, Yeshua responds by telling them that it will all be destroyed and evidently does it in such a way that they don't doubt him. <clears throat> Whereas, you know... One of them remarked on the grandeur of the many buildings of the temple complex. Um, and he told all of them of the impending destruction. Only four come to him privately to ask him a question. Um, and surprisingly, it isn't just three this time. Usually it's three, Peter, James, and John. But this time, Peter's brother, Andrew, joins them. So one more thing. Um, they have waited until they've left Jerusalem to speak to him. All right. The fact that they retreated to the Mount of Olives should remind us of the account of the presence of the Lord departing from Solomon's temple in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 21 through 23, after Ezekiel was shown all the abominations being performed there. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations... I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of God went up from the midst of the city and stood on that mountain which is on the east side of the city. Of course, that's the Mount of Olives on the east side. Again, as it was before the Babylonian exile, the temple and the leadership stand condemned and the spirit of God who only ever visited this second temple in the person of Yeshua has left and will never return to it, um, heralding its destruction. <clears throat> so, verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? There are two questions here that cannot be separated from Yeshua's covenant lawsuit indictment against the temple and its leadership. We can't change the subject and make this about a future tribulation completely stripped from the context of the prophesied destruction of the temple, but that's exactly what so many people do. Two questions. The first is, when will these things be? What things? Let's go back to verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So let's rephrase the question from the four. When will the temple complex be destroyed? Because it isn't one building. It was truly a city on a hill. The temple itself, a.k.a. the Hekal, was just at the center. It was immediately surrounded by four huge buildings, each joined together by walled-in gatehouses, is what we would call them. To the west was another courtyard surrounded with smaller rooms and gates. The temple was a fortress. For that matter, so was the entire mount, and it was... <clears throat> insanely defendable okay it was it was almost impossible to assault this is why it was so difficult for invaders to breach it and you know especially after the herodian improvements um herod increased the size of the temple mount enormously we know that from josephus this is and so did the hasmoneans actually but herod really increased it but this is exactly why the Romans took over the Antonia, uh, the fortress that sat on the northeastern corner of the Temple Mount and actually emptied into the court of the Gentiles. Um, we see this in the whole Temple Bruhaha where um, Paul is descending down the steps of the Antonia where he's been arrested and he wants to address the people gathered there. Um... In addition to all of this, along the outside edges of this greatly expanded platform from Hasmonean and Herodian improvements, which we see today and is huge compared to the original 500 by 500 amount or uh, royal cubit platform of Solomon, all around the edges were huge colonnades. And I'm not kidding in calling this a city with its own government, commerce, and infrastructure. To bring it down, to even try and bring it down, was no small thing. Uh, and really, the Romans couldn't have done it without the Jews' helps in, inside the Zealots' helps, not the Jews, the, the Zealots, which is one of the factions. Um, so their question is when, okay? And shockingly, they never asked how. I'd want to know how. Divine judgment could spare Jerusalem, but foreign invaders would most certainly not. Second question, what will be the sign when all these things are about to happen? Again, same things, the destruction of the temple complex, the city on the hill, and Yeshua, well, being Yeshua, he isn't going to answer them right away. <laughs> Not even going to tell them. What he is going to do is give them a list of things that are going to happen that aren't signs. And the reason why is really important. <clears throat> Verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. All right, first of all, we have a new word here, new theme word for this section. It's blepo, which I know sounds hilariously unimpressive. Sounds like a failed soft drink brand name. But it's very, or kids cartoon character blepo but it's very important because it means be on your guard even though it's translated as see in the above verse so this isn't some sort of mild suggestion this is borderline harsh they've asked for a sign and he replies with something like hey there 
Get your focus where it needs to be so that you aren't going to be easy pickings for the pretenders that are coming. This is very parental. Very much a stern warning. Why does he say this to him? Them. Sorry. Frankly, because they are committing the classic blunder, which was on full display from the Pharisees in Mark 8, asking for signs. In Matthew's version of the account in chapters 12 and 16, Yeshua calls their generation evil and adulterous for even asking. And we're like that. We want to know the future, right? But Yeshua is warning us here that wanting to know the future makes us vulnerable to deception and distraction. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about some examples from their immediate national future where there were those promising signs and wonders, you know, those who were promising signs and wonders, you know, who would lead the people astray into their deaths even. But Yeshua, in the Olivet Discourse here, is not going to give them what they wanted. He's going to flat out tell them that they're going to have to cope with ignorance. I mean, he doesn't say it like that, but that's how I would say it. Um, they're not going to know what it is they want to know. Okay, they're not going to know what they want to know. But they will be called to endure faithfully until the end, their own end, come to find out. Uh, but as for distractions and temptations of false prophets during the times of turmoil, we have, we have a couple of examples handy here, courtesy of Josephus. Oh, all right. So Josephus tells this account from during the procurator, pro, procuratorship, uh, a fetus who served from 44 to 46, a common era. So this is like, 15 years after Yeshua, and what? 25 years before the temple destruction. Now, it came to pass, while Fetus was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician, whose name was Thutis, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan, for he told them he was a prophet, and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Faudus did not permit them to, to make any advantage of this wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, who, falling on them unexpectedly, slew many of them, and took many of them alive. They also took Thutis alive, uh, it's probably Theodos, and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. This is what befell the Jews in the time of Cuspius Thetis's government. That's from Antiquities 20.5.1. Then there was this account from circa 66 at the beginning of the Great Revolt. There was also another body of wicked men gotten together. Not so impure in their actions, but more wicked in their intentions. Which laid waste the happy state of the city, no less than did these murderers. 
These were such men as deceived and deluded the people under the pretense of divine inspiration, but were for procuring innovations and changes to the government, and these prevailed with the multitude to act like madmen, and went before them into the wilderness, pretending that God would there show them the, sim the signals of liberty. They were looking for signs. But Felix thought this procedure was the beginning of a revolt. So he sent some horsemen and footmen, both armed, who destroyed a great number of them. But there was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews more mischief than the former, for he was a cheat, and pretended to be a prophet also, and got together 30,000 men that were deluded by him. These he led around from the wilderness to the mount that was called the Mount of Olives, and was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place. And if he could but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people, he intended to domineer over them by the assistance of those guards of his that were to break into the city with him. But Felix prevented this attempt and met him with his Roman soldiers, while all the people assisted him in his attack on them, insomuch that when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away. And by Egyptian, they mean a Jew from Alexandria. Um, with a few others, while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive, but the rest of the multitude were dispersed, everyone to their own homes, and these concealed themselves. Um, that's from the Wars of the Jews, 2, uh, 13, and four, uh, sections 4 through 5. It's important to note that this guy wasn't just like a Gentile Egyptian that somehow these Jews were following because that just, that wouldn't happen. Um, Verse 6, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. We saw above some of the reasons for the warning. Jeremiah said the same thing in chapter 14, verses 13 through 16. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, Sword and famine shall not come but upon this land. By sword and famine these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy will be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil on them. Um, in the same way as had happened under Jeremiah before the Babylonian conquest, as things heated up in Jerusalem and Judea over the coming decades, there would be pretenders popping up claiming authority and position and voice that they do not possess, you know, to speak on behalf of God. People who want signs and to know the future will be forever deceived by false prophets. They'd make big promises, the kinds of promises that desperate, oppressed, overtaxed, and angry people love to hear, <coughs> but they would be empty lies and people would die. They would be led to their deaths for any number of reasons. Some were convinced to retreat into the temple as the armies gathered and they ended up starving or 
falling into the falling to the factional zealot against zealot violence or committing suicide or dying in the flames that engulfed the temple or taken into slavery all because they believed the assurances of false prophets that God was going to destroy the Roman army at any moment and save them from destruction. Um, Yeshua's warning them ahead of time, this is not going to be the case. In relating the deaths of all the people who sought refuge um, in the temple... Uh, Josephus has this to say about many who um, were led astray. Okay, this is from Wars 6.5.2. A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now, there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose on the people who denounced this to them, that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting and that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now, a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises for when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from these miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such his deliverance. And the same thing today. Okay, People who are scared are easy prey for false prophets. Um, but, you know, not all voices were promising. Destruction of the Romans and, and deliverance and salvation. There were some who were prophesying the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, the temple. There were also omens in the sky and the temple itself, you know, as we talked about last week. This is from Josephus' Wars of the Jews, 6.5.3. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers. And such as belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident, and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but, like men infatuated, without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. Thus there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. And the really tragic thing is that all this confusion and deception would happen all over again in the Kittis War of um, 117 to, or 115 to 117, and 20 years later under a man uh, called Barcoqua, a messianic pretender backed by Rabbi Akiva of all people. Um, verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay. Wars and rumors of wars is a normal part of life. But Yeshua is telling them not to pay any attention to it. In fact, what is translated here as do not be alarmed again is blepo. This again is a stern warning not to be distracted. 
the end of the temple and Jerusalem is not immediately in sight. Um, I mean, I want you to think about it. Seriously, they are living on the border between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. Over the course of the next four decades, there's going to be an unending succession of drama and skirmishes there and pretty much everywhere they would consider to be the whole world. Because when, when they talk about the whole world, they're talking about the Roman Empire. Not talking about anything inside. That's not their world. It's it's weird, but they don't... When we say the whole world, we mean the whole planet. <laughs> they did not. Um, ooh. Ah, better stop. <laughs> Didn't realize we only had like 15 seconds left to go. No, okay. Wars and rumors of wars. And we hear them today. It doesn't mean the end is near. There have always been wars. Always been rumors of wars. Be back in uh, just a few minutes. and welcome back to the second half of this week's character in context on these are not the signs you're looking for because <laughs> you know they wanted signs and i'll tell you she was up to this point saying um yeah no let me tell you what aren't signs and they're probably going this guy's never helpful <laughs> he never tells us what we really want to hear ever um and so our last verse had been um, chapter 13, verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. They're going, oh my gosh. Please, we want it to be over. We want the messianic kingdom to come in. We want to be at your right and your left hand and all the rest can just, you know, be outside. <laughs> um. Anyway, so... This, the, the first century is going to be filled like every century before or after with wars and rumors of wars and drama. Um, but I mean, after, between the time of this and the destruction of the temple, you know, Caligula Caesar would be assassinated. Heck, some of them would be assassinated. Uh, Claudius uh, was possibly murdered by his own wife. Nero had to flee Rome and then later killed himself. I, I, have filled himself on my notes here. That's probably not correct. Um, although those Roman empires, actually Nero, I've seen the statues. I think he was filling himself too. Um, then came the year of the four emperors. Herod Antipas got into a war with his former father-in-law. There were always problems. There are always problems. There will always be problems. But they would have to be ignoring them and, and we'll be told why later. As the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, the history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword, there were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. This is from his The Histories 1-2. But there is more here than just being told not to be distracted. How, you know, how are such times, you know, distracting and especially for men? 
there's always the temptation to take up arms and fight. And as we have seen from the stories of the false prophets in the last half hour, they convinced many to do just that, to no avail. Jerusalem and the temple are a lost cause and not their battle to be fought. From the beginning of his ministry, Yeshua has been showing them that their battles are not against flesh and blood. Common theme in Paul as well. Theirs is the path of nonviolence. They will die, and many of them violently, but they will not die as, say, the pro false prophet Joseph Smith, with a gun in his hand, willing to kill to preserve his own life. None of Yeshua's followers will, be, will go out that way. Uh, verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Um, I already shared from Tacitus about the terrible wars that rocked the Roman and Parthian empires, within and without. But there were also a great many earthquakes, ones which especially would have been known to the Marcan audience centered in Rome. Here is another one of um, his writings uh, describing the events during the reign of Claudius. Many prodigies occurred during the year. Ominous birds took their seat on the capital. Houses were overturned by repeated shocks of earthquake, and as the panic spread and the weak were trampled underfoot in the trepidation of the crowd, a shortage of corn again and the famine which resulted were construed as a supernatural warning. And this is from Tacitus's The Annals of Imperial Rome, 1243. There are also records of earthquakes in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple, um, including a very destructive one in Pompeii in 62 of the Common Era. Of course, Pompeii was destroyed in 79. Um, but also in Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae in 60 of the Common Era. Ah, this is also Tacitus from the Annals 1427. That year, that same year, one of Asia's famous cities, Laodicea, collapsed in an earthquake, but recovered through its own resources with no help from us. Josephus in Wars, uh, Wars of the Jews, 4.4.5, uh, reported a storm so terrible during the siege that he described it as like being an, an earthquake. And any of you people who've ever lived in Missouri or anywhere in the Midwest, you know, and experienced one of these lightning storms, and if you've ever had one strike close to you, you know it ain't kidding. I grew up in California, and I went through several earthquakes, um, none on an epicenter, thank God. And none were as impactful or scary as what happened to my house when we had lightning take down a tree right next to the house. It exploded it. And um, the whole house thundered and rocked. It, it, everything shook. Um, the famine mentioned above was also prophesied by Agabus as recorded in the book of Acts 11, 27 through 28. Now, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. Josephus wrote about it as well. In Antiquities 20, point two point five. Um, 
Now, her coming was of very great advantage to the people of Jerusalem. For whereas a famine did not oppress them at that time, and many people died for want of what was necessary to produce, produce food withal, Queen Helena sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of corn and others to Cyprus to bring a cargo of dried figs. But these are common events that signify nothing. They certainly are full of sound and fury, though, to steal from Shakespeare. They have happened from the beginning, and they will, they will continue to happen through all of time. And that's a good thing to keep in mind whenever there are natural disasters. It's the way of the world. It isn't weird. It isn't divine judgment when a hurricane hits Florida or any of the Gulf states. It isn't a judgment when an earthquake hits California or Idaho. These things are normal. Or when fires consume the western states in the summer and the fall. Or when malaria ravages Africa or other tropical locales. Now, if a hurricane hits Idaho, then yeah, totally divine judgment because it's weird. If fires rage across Alaska, weird. But Yeshua, in the winter, you know. But Yeshua is saying that this sort of thing doesn't qualify as a sign because it's always happened and always will. Some people, they're just gleefully itching for divine judgment just as long as it affects someone else's family. You know, when something happens to their family, it's the devil, right? Um, it's, uh, it's frankly really sick, all right? It's like Yeshua says, these aren't even the birth pangs. They're the beginning of them. The normal stuff is the beginning. Nothing to see here, folks. Go about your business. Verse 9, but be on your guard. Okay, what do we have here? It's Blapo again. Okay, uh, that stern warning. Don't be on guard about wars or rumors about wars or earthquakes all over the place or famines. None of that. It's beneath your notice. You'll have bigger fish to fry and other things to worry about. Now the subject changes to what they need to pay attention to. This is continuing on with verse 9. For they will deliver you over to councils. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. That's what you need to worry about, and not all the stuff that will send everyone else scattering and freaking out. And you have to think right now that all of a sudden the temple being destroyed is the least of their concerns. Here, they were wanting some insider information and signs of the coming destruction, and not only didn't they get a single sign, but the other shoe drops and the news is really, really bad. Probably with the exception of Peter, these are little more than teenagers. They had originally thought they would be following a rabbi and becoming important men, and then it appeared that they were all inside men to the new Davidic king, the messianic conqueror himself. And then Yeshua begins to tell these guys that he won't be the Messiah they've been looking for. He's going to die horribly. And now he's saying that they will be arrested and beaten themselves. Whoever it was that was marveling about the temple buildings is probably sorry now that he said anything about it. These are largely uneducated small-town guys. I mean, fishermen, maybe some farmers, one or two tax collectors if Matthew and James, son of Alphaeus, were brothers. Being told that they'll be delivered over. Paradidomi. 
which, as you recall, is never good and carries with it the notion of betrayal to counsel, a.k.a. Sanhedrins, and that in the synagogues they will be beaten. Okay, so we got to talk about that real quick. Being beaten in the synagogues was part of administrative justice, okay? If you were leaving the synagogue for good, you wouldn't submit to a beating. They were not separating from the synagogues. They were just going to be non-violently enduring persecution as the price tag for continuing to preach the gospel. But you, you tell me that, you know, about the next time somebody doesn't want to believe something you're saying and call yourself persecuted. Now, they would also, and here's where it would get really scary for them, be brought before governors and kings, educated men, powerful men, foreigners, which is even worse, okay? Now, sometimes we forget that these are real people and really young people at that. Can you even imagine how intimidating that idea is? Bad enough they have to remain in the synagogues and endure the lashes in order to continue to give Yeshua's message. But at least those are their own people whom they can expect to have some mercy. Not kings, though. Not governors. Not foreigners. That's where people went to die, and horribly at that. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So... Here's their second thing they need to be focused on. Again, not the wars, not the rumors of wars, not the earthquakes, not the famines, but the job, their job of proclaiming the message of the kingdom to the nations. And we can learn a lot from that. It's almost as though he's telling them, let those without eyes to see and ears to hear panic and pay attention to those other things. You follow me. And preach this message to the ends of the earth. Ignore appearances. Your life will not look like their lives. And this was probably just as scary as appearing before governors and kings. You know, these kids have probably never left Galilee and Judea except for with Jesus, Yeshua. And uh, briefly at that, they weren't world travelers. How were they even going to do it? That had to be on their minds. But of course, it's been the plan all along that they would be a light to the Gentiles. That was the true intention of their being called in the first place. Um, even though, as we will see in Acts, they weren't really keen on leaving the borders of Eretz Israel until they were all forced to. It's like, gee, glad never, God, God never has to force us to do stuff because we're so obedient on the ball. <laughs> yeah. Not me. Ugh. So verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Okay, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. That right there must have been pretty depressing. Maybe they were like, well, maybe he's just talking about Peter because, dang, that boy, right? But maybe it won't happen to me. But no, we have the promise that this is in their future and that they will not only be tried, but also paradidomi, delivered over, which in the Bible is usually to the Gentiles in order to be killed. 
but they're commanded not to be anxious about it ahead of time um and and concoct the concocting speeches um or getting educated or whatever because they were not going to be left to their own devices or cleverness they're being they're they're told not to even give it a thought to learning judicial procedures or how to speak to powerful educated and clever people but that the holy spirit was going to speak through them as he did with the prophets of old all right and perhaps even as he had been doing when they went out in twos okay we really don't know but Yeshua is promising a prophetic level of empowerment, the kind that Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah had. They spoke to kings and were bold about their testimony. Yeshua is telling them that it will be the same for them. I want you to imagine hearing this as an uneducated fisherman, as all four of these young men were, and they didn't have Torah scrolls at home, they didn't have any scripture with them. This was a concrete promise that the spirit of prophecy um, and that and a, that a level of anointing would fall on them. However, there's something else here. Words are promised through the spirit even, but no deliverance or acquittal is promised in these trials. They will witness with the power and authority of the prophets of old, and they will do it with the same guarantees, which is none at all. Many of the prophets were killed performing their missions. The disciples would face the same. Verse 12. And um, brother will deliver brother over to death. And, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This is the painful part. All right. For as much as you and I might love our families, we are largely individualistic. Overwhelmingly individualistic. Who am I fooling? We can even move away from them and be content. Ancient times? No. Not the same. People were all part of this larger dyadic or community-based mindset where you found your entire identity not in your association, not only in your associations, your voluntary associations, but in your family. You were son of, or daughter of, or whatever, of the clan, you know, such and such, you know, and, and of a larger people. You weren't your own person. Such a concept didn't even exist in those days where you could be a unique individual, and no one cares where you are from or about your family and your identity isn't bound up with theirs. I'm not saying it's Borg level, non-individuality, but, you know, it's somewhere between individualism and that. Um, nowadays, we you can be excellent or a total goat on your own, and your reputation isn't bound up with your family reputation. But in those days, you were your family, and they were you. You only existed in how you related to them. If you dishonored the family as a man, perhaps your family business would be destroyed and they would starve and um, your sisters couldn't find husbands. If you were dishonored as a woman, you'd most likely be killed in order to restore family honor and um, save them all from ruin. 
You know, on one hand, families were close in ways that we can't imagine. Um, on the other hand, they were, for better or worse, all desperately dependent on everyone following the social rules. Following Yeshua was going to have consequences not only with leadership, you know, foreign and domestic, but also with families scrambling for acceptability within the communities. Honor shame is a very stressful way to live, all right? I mean, it's not like there are non-stressful ways to live, but they're stressful for different reasons. I would never want to live in an honor shame culture. It'd be pity my family. Kind of a loose cannon. Anyway, this is specifically why Yeshua said things like, you must hate your own family. And here are your mother, brothers, and sisters. Yeshua had to create a new system where more honor, a.k.a. loyalty, a.k.a. love, was owed to this new family in Yeshua than to the community family unit that depended on them to be normal and respectable. Family members would turn on one another. We've already seen this with Yeshua's own family, who would rather see him branded as crazy instead of as a false prophet. As funny as it is, in retrospect, his brothers, and James and Jude at least, were given positions of prominence within the early congregations because of this honor-shame familial associations. Um, you know, it was all due to this honor-shame dynamic, even though they rejected him while he was ministering, so we don't even know if they ever heard anything he had to say. <laughs> we don't. Now, Yeshua is telling them that not only will they be rejected, but handed over, paradidomi again, to death. Um, and they would do this in order to avoid persecution themselves. Just think of what would happen if your kid or sibling or whoever, if they began or joined a crazy cult that was turning the world upside down. You'd just be worried or embarrassed, but no one would start harassing you at work or refuse to do business with you unless you were, unless they were a total jerk or unless you were. But to these guys, it was a matter of life and death. All right. Verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There was no way to, you know, dress this up nicely. He's offering them no hope of popularity, the popularity they once fantasized and debated about. You know, who's going to be the greatest among them, you know, right? Now they're just wondering who would live the longest. And yet... Clue, it won't be Judas. And yet, I was pretty flippant, sorry. And yet, here we have this wonderful promise that pops up in the prophets and in apocalyptic writings. You will have tribulation because of me, but if you endure, endure then you will be saved. You may die, but you will experience the reward and resurrection of the righteous. We see that in the prophets and Daniel and Revelation too. We also see that in some of the apocryphal writings because such encouragements and warnings and promises were very common motifs in Second Temple era Judaism. Whenever anyone was facing temptation to give up or give in or to collaborate, we see this kind of writing telling people to expect harsh treatment, but telling them that there is a reason to endure. In the Hebrew Bible, the resurrection of the dead is not really seen in their beliefs. It really only shows up once in Daniel, which was probably written during Hellenistic times. Before that, they had the idea of Sheol, the underworld, and we aren't really seeing them talking about the resurrection. 
But through Hellenistic times, we see this as a theme. I have no idea when it happened or why. It seems to be kind of a mystery when they began to see the resurrection as a reality. Certainly Yeshua preached it, but it was already on the scene before he ever got there. Um, all right, one more thing here. All these things that Yeshua is telling them will happen to them. The trial and being delivered over, the beatings, the standing before governors, um, the being hated and rejected by relatives and betrayed by brothers and children. This is what's about to happen to Yeshua. Okay. There will be a trial. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will stand before Pilate. He will be beaten. He will be abandoned by his closest associates and even betrayed to death by one of them. If it happens to him, they can obviously expect it too. Oh, man, my throat is just dry as heck. <laughs> All right. Um, so next week, finished early here. Oh, no. Next week, we're going to be talking about the abomination which causes desolation and about the meaning of the phrase, uh, let the reader understand and how ironic it is that we don't exactly know what it means because there are some different possibilities. So, so let the reader understand and we're going, what? <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about some of the scholarly um, uh, theories on that. We're also going to talk about how weird the Greek is. And we're going to talk, oh, we're going to talk about hermeneutics, exegesis, and eisegesis, which is something everyone who wants to teach and everyone who wants to study the Bible really needs to at least be familiar with, or else we just go ahead and make everything mean whatever we want it to mean, and we, we read our own agendas into the Bible, and we don't even know that what we think we see there isn't there. Anyway, um, see you next week. <laughs>